We're going to go to Romans chapter 3 today, and uh, we're also going to be in Romans chapter 3 next week, Easter Sunday. Very excited about the message for next Sunday. If you have somebody in your life who's not necessarily, uh, you know, you might say close to God right now, please encourage them to come. The, the title of next week's message is A Hill Worth Dying On. We're going to talk about the great worth that God places upon you and upon me. And so it's going to be a, a great message. It's going to really, uh, I think, uh, really really cause people to really think and evaluate themselves and think uh, differently about God. And uh, very, very excited about next week. So love to see you next week at Easter. Romans chapter 3. We're just going to just dive in today. Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 9. This is what Paul is doing here, is he is building, you might say, the, the underpinning of his big philosophical argument for the entire book of Romans, the book that has changed the world, literally changed the world. And so starting at verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude? Are we any better? Are we any better than any of these pagan Gentiles that are out there doing all these terrible things? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, as it is written, <clears throat> here he throws together lots of different phrases from the Old Testament, from the book of Ecclesiastes, from Isaiah, from the Psalms. And he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood and ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world be held accountable to God. And therefore, no one, listen to this now, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. We become conscious of sin. And I wrote in my notes I'm in my Bible here years ago, and we begin to question our very heart. <laughs> now look at verse 9. When the Apostle Paul says we are all under sin, we can really kind of easily pass over that and kind of miss the significance of what he is saying, that we all have this soul contagion, and there's a staggering power of sin in our lives. And he's using very well-thought-out language here to tell you and I a critical truth. Paul doesn't say that we all commit sins, that we all have a character flaw, we have bad habits. He's not saying that all of us are sinners, you know, that we are addicted to sin, refuse to give it up. What he is saying is that we are all under sin. It's the language of domination, even slavery. In Galatians 3.22, he said this, the scriptures show that the whole world is bound by sin and imprisoned under the power of sin. And so all through the book of Romans, what you're going to see the Apostle Paul do is he doesn't characterize sin as some kind of a, a natural force in the natural world order or a character flaw in man. Instead, he personifies sin and it's portrayed as a cunning and ruthless taskmaster. <laughs> he says things like this in Romans 6.12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body as if it were a king. And he says in Romans 6.16, When you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin. What is he saying there? Sin is like a slave master. And he says in Romans 7.9, When the commandment came, sin sprang to life 
and I died. You know, he gives it a living kind of a, a dynamic there. And as I said a moment ago, these phrases are from Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Isaiah. And his purpose here is to, to prove what he has been describing in the first two chapters, which is the, the staggering power of sin over all of our lives. And when we say that man is totally depraved, we're not saying that man is as bad as he can possibly be, but everything about us is impaired. You know, we just, we can't quite pull it together. We can't quite do everything that we want to do. We want to be a, live a life that's full of virtue and courage and, and, and you know, fearlessness and, and all these kinds of things. We just can't do it. Why not? It's because what the Bible, what scholars call the total depravity of man. And it's that at the fall of man, our mind, our will, our emotions, even our flesh was infected by this sin contagion, damaged by sin. And so that means that every thought, every word, every action is polluted by self-something, you know, uh, self-seeking, self-preservation, or self-exaltation, trying to make much of ourselves. Now, I really want to stress that the purpose of this passage is not for you and I to point fingers at somebody else or some other group, because every time you point one finger at somebody else, there are three more pointing back at you, right? And we get out of bed every day and all of us have to go to battle in some area of our life or another with this contagion, this soul contagion, the power of sin. Real quickly, we talked about this last week. We said, number one, sin is always going to pry you away from God. Always. Look at verses 10 and 12. He says, there's no one righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands all over the world. Religious people are flocking to temples, to synagogues, cathedrals, churches, and mosques, filling up worship areas, going through ceremonies, going through rituals. And if you were to ask them all, what are you doing here? I'm seeking God. God says, no, you're not. (laughs) All have turned away, he says. The picture, by the way, in in that word phrase there is a caravan, a camel caravan that's crossing the desert on a well worn path, but they stray away from the route and they become lost and they can't return back to that narrow way and they're doomed to die out in the desert because they're lost in the wilderness. And so, what sin does is it always uses deception and discouragement, despair to pry you and me away from God. Number two, We said last week, sin pollutes our relationships because he goes on in verse 12 through 14 to talk about, you know, how, you know, all the words that we say, how we are damaged by them, but also we damage others. And it just, it just rips apart our relationships. Have you ever noticed that when you go to the doctor, the first thing he always wants to do is look down your throat. And I don't know, I always wondered as a kid, like, why is he going to look down my throat every time? Well, he sees what's going on inside of you by looking at your throat. And Jesus, the great physician, says the same thing is true with your soul. Look down your throat. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, listen and understand this. It is not what goes into a man's mouth that makes his mind and heart sinful. It is what comes out of a man's mouth that makes his mind and heart sinful. And so what sin is always going to do is always going to try to move you or motivate you and me to pollute our relationships, our marriage, our, our, our relationships with our children, with our church, wherever it might be with criticism, mockery, slander, arguing, all those things. And the third one today is this, that sin always propels you and me into pain. There's always got two two hands between our shoulder blades just pushing us 
into the most painful place possible. Look at look at uh, verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You know, I got up Monday morning. I began to work on this message. And I decided I better check the news, you know, Monday morning. Another school shooting, this time in Nashville at a Christian elementary school. You know that in Philadelphia ISD, 18 students have been killed in gun violence this year. It doesn't make the news because it's usually just one or two kids at a time. But just this last week, a really great kid was shot and killed on the street walking to school because some kids wanted his lunch money. 81 kids have been wounded in Philadelphia ISD this year. The uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology did a research a couple of years ago, and they said a child born in the United States in the 1980s is more likely to die from gunfire than his great-grandfather in, as a soldier in World War II. Did you catch that? It's not just the schools, though. We have security guards here at the church. It's going to the grocery store now, like in Buffalo, New York. It's going to a parade, like Boston, Massachusetts. It's flying in an airplane. You might get beat up, you know? In America, we assume the risk of violence just by getting out of bed in the morning right now. Why are Americans so obsessed with causing each other so much pain? It's the power of sin. Look at verse 15 again. Shedding blood there is not just murder. It's every kind of violence, you know, fighting, biting, you know, scratching and hitting. You know, it goes into the same category. Sin is always trying to entice you and me into inflicting pain on other people. Proverbs 1 says this, My child, if sinners try to entice you, do not consent for they are eager to inflict harm and they hasten to shed blood. The increasing presence of violence in our society, why? Because of the decreasing presence of God in the hearts and minds of people. Look at the movies. Look at the video games that are designed to entice our children. They're so incredibly violent. It's exactly what Solomon said. Sinners try to entice us. I don't know if you knew this or not, uh, I was in I was in college when the when the PG thirteen rating was introduced back in 1985, and back in those days when they first came out, the PG thirteen movie had as much violence as a G movie, maybe a PG movie, but it, so it wasn't very much. But since 2009, PG thirteen movies now have more violence than rated R movies, and now we have these things called splatter films. You know these horror films that you know kind of really focus in on extremely grotesque acts of violence and graphic violence. What is happening here? Hollywood's figured out a formula to make enormous amounts of money, and they're doing it at the cost of young lives, but they don't really seem to care. And we have a lot of talk about gun control, et cetera, et cetera. I want to talk about movie control. I want to talk about video game control. Those are some of the things I want to talk about, too. We should have those conversations as well. And this does, by the way, doesn't take into account the changes in music that are going on that are aimed at young people. You know, the video game violence is so bad that even the, the, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, will not allow American video games in China. Incredible. We have TikTok and they don't. Multiple studies, by the way, show a strong association between exposure to violence in media and violent thoughts. There may be someone here today and you really want to inflict harm on someone. You want revenge because someone's done you wrong. And the first chance you get, you're going to even the scales. You're going to bring the pain. And if that's you, by the way, you're not in good company. 
when you read your Bible. Look at Judges 15, 7. Samson said to them, the Philistines, since you have acted like this, I swear I will not stop until I get my revenge on you. So Samson is your Bible hero, okay? And we all know what happened to him. You know, Samson is a picture, by the way, of the modern action hero. John Wick, Deadpool, uh, John Rambo, the Punisher. He's a good guy, kind of minding his own business. He's harming no one. Someone does him wrong, and he swears that he'll get vengeance at all costs. And he kills dozens of people to get it. This twisted ethics of grievance that are just saturating young minds here in our country. All of our minds, really. It's having a devastating effect on our young men. I just want to say this. If you're a parent, especially a parent of boys, you need to have your eyes wide open to the truth, the power of sin. This witch's brew of video games, ultra-violent movies, and social media, it does so much damage to young lives. Proverbs 21.7 says, The violence of the wicked will drag them away, for they refuse to do what is right. And whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Look at that phrase, violence will drag them away. The picture is of a predator dragging the carcass of a fresh kill. You can't miss the irony that a violent life will result in a violent death, and it'll be a sad, sad end. We all know how it ended for Samson. His eyes plunged out, he's in slavery, and he ends up crushing himself. It's a mass suicide. But on the other hand, Look what God's word tells you and me. The person who pursues righteousness and love, they're going to be successful and they're going to be honored. And you may be here today, you may be thinking about revenge, getting even, settling the score. And someone immediately comes to mind when I say those words and thoughts of revenge fill your heart. Can I just tell you this morning, that's not the spirit of God. That's the spirit of the world that we live in today. This world is getting more and more violent because we are so swift to shed blood. Why? Because of the power of sin that's at work in our country. Luke chapter 6, Jesus said, I say to all of you who will listen to me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who treat you badly. Think about how antithetical that is to mainstream American culture in 2023 wasn't that long ago that that was more mainstream American culture, but it's so antithetical now because of our media and our education system, et cetera, et cetera. The next one is this. Look at verse 16 and 17. Is that sin is going to just pulverize any sense of peace that you have in your life. The sin always wants to do. Pulverize your peace. Ruin and misery mark their paths in the way of peace they do not know. You know, as surely as night follows day, wherever man goes, misery follows. That's why, you know, you look at our our, our beautiful mountains and streams and things like that, and you see them polluted. It's the sinful heart of man. Why do so many of our beautiful children in this country suffer so much? It's the sinful heart of man. What Paul is doing here, by the way, is he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 59. It's a very, very powerful passage in your Bible. And through the prophet Isaiah, God is issuing a warning against sin. Why? He says he's saying here in Isaiah 59, sin is going to rob you of your peace. Look at this. I think it's up on the screen. Isaiah 59 says this. Listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear too deaf to hear you call. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. 
They don't know where to find peace or what it means to be just and good. They have mapped out crooked roads and no one one who follows them knows a moment's peace. So this world that you and I live in, we have to get up and work in every day. We have to go to school in every day. You know, it's terminally ill with this sin contagion. And one thing that this sin contagion is always going to do is pry you and I away from God, but then pulverize our sense of peace. And from the dawn of man, Satan has always cast doubt on God's word. And when he said there in the garden, did God really say? Satan was the very first humanist, by the way. It's like, you don't need God. You can do life just fine on your own. You don't need any help from anybody else. That's why Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the way thereof, or that is the way to death. It seems right to us. It makes perfect sense to us. Yes, in our sin-twisted, infected minds, yes, but it always leads to death. Look at that word ruin there for a moment. This is the only time this word is used in your New Testament. It means to shatter something like a piece of pottery and crush it completely, like break it up into tiny pieces, crush it into powder. It's a total devastation. That's a powerful word. It's supposed to like evoke a lot of emotion when you read it in the original language, ruin. And then misery, misery. That's the emotional condition of a person who's suffering from an intense inner torment. I I just got to tell you again, I was a youth pastor for years. And when I read things like this, my heart always goes to teenagers first, our kids. I think about all the teens in our society right now who are struggling with anxiety and depression and confusion They turn to the adults in our society pleading for help. Would you please help me? And what do they get from our best and brightest minds? Not a moment's peace. Mm. I mentioned a few weeks ago that my daughter visited a seminary. We got to have lunch with one of the professors at this seminary, you know, to ask questions about the school, et cetera. And he's like, do you have any other questions? I said, well, I'm just kind of curious. I said, what kind of a research project are you working on? This man's about 70 years old. He's been deeply studying God's word for, you know, the last 50 years of his life. Uh, just a great guy, by the way, too. Love talking to him. He said, I'm working. This is, the, this is the end of my life. Before I die, I want to finish a book on what the Bible says about gender. That's the issue that we have to face right now in the church. And so I said, man, I'd love to hear more about it. And he said, well, one thing that's really interesting, he said, uh, a, a bomb has gone off as it relates to gender medicine in the United Kingdom. He said, the United Kingdom started widespread use of hormones and gender affir- what's called gender-affirming care about 10 years before we did. And the British National Health Service is now shuttering its gender affirmation clinic in London. The clinic is facing lawsuits from people who are now adults who were encouraged to transition when they were teenagers. They were a very vulnerable place in life, genuinely struggling, and the clinic made their lives much worse, they're saying, in this class action lawsuit. The surgeries, the hormones, the puberty blockers, and he said now their lives are in ruins. They are angry at the clinic, and they are filing lawsuits. Now, sadly, it's not morality, it's money that's causing the British political elite to kind of reevaluate all this, but they are. They brought in the president of the Royal College of Pediatrics to review the clinic, and she called for a radical overhaul 
of how Great Britain treats children questioning their gender identity. And by the way, Sweden and Finland are also reversing course. They're backing down. We're doubling down here in the United States of America. Now, right now in America, 25 states do not require, do not require parental consent for these massively powerful drugs like puberty blockers and sex hormones, which by the way, those drugs were not designed to change someone's gender. That's not what they were made to do. And the Heritage Foundation just released some research about a year ago. The states that are that are without parental consent, you can get gender-affirming care without your parents' notice. The teenage suicide rates are actually 14% higher than in the states that do require parental consent. You know, I just think about that, you know. What are we telling kids right now? You came from nothing. You're going to nothing. And by the way, yeah, you're, you're just a mess. Everything about you is messed up. But what does the Bible say to our kids? God loves you. God cares about you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made just the way you are. And when this life is over, God wants to take you into eternal glory and call you his very own. Those two messages could not be more different. But that's what our young people are hearing in the education system today. And I use the experiences of America's teenagers only as an illustration because we're all vulnerable to this peace-pulverizing world system that we live in. It might be in your married life, in your family life, your financial life, your work life, your inner life. There is a way of peace. It's knowing and doing the will of God. But the world always presents an alternative to doing God's holy will. Always, always. And the alternative is always like that piece of fruit that Satan tempted Eve with. It looks great. It's pleasing to the eye. It's attractive. And it it awakens a desire deep inside of you. You can live your life your way. You can do it all the way you want to do. That desire deep within you and me to be your own man, to be your own woman, without any interference from anyone else, even if it's your very creator himself. I don't know where you might be today, but if you're at a place in some place in your life and you you can kind of see that piece of fruit enticing you, I know what the Bible says, I know what God's word says over here, but man, this sure looks good over here when I think about how I want to live my life because that's the way everybody else is doing it. And that's the way they're doing it, you know, on the, the TV show that I like or the podcast that I listen to, et cetera, et cetera. I would say hey, it's a lie. It's a deception. And the, pa- the price that you and I pay for leaving the path of the will of God is always the same. It's our peace. Jeremiah 6.16, the Lord said to his people, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths. And where the best road is, walk in it, and you will live in peace. We're living in a world where the pace of change is breathtaking. And can I just tell you, ladies and gentlemen, moms and dads, AI is going to increase the pace of change geometrically. It's going to be incredible how fast things are going to change and become so much more modern, et cetera, et cetera. And we're facing change at breakneck speed. We have to have the courage to stand on the ancient paths, the timeless truths that have always worked in all times at all places for all peoples. The courage to say, as for me and my family, the ancient path is best and we will walk in it. 
We have to be able to do that in the years to come. And the last thing is this. He says that sin is going to poison your heart and mind with pride. Look at verse 18. There's no fear of God before their eyes. He's quoting Psalm 36 here, by the way, where David describes a sinner who's deceived because of his own pride. Psalm 36, 1 through 3. There's no fear of God before their eyes. In their own eyes, they flatter themselves too much to detect their sin. The words of their mouths are wicked and deceitful, and they fail to act wisely or do good. Notice how brutally honest he is here about the human condition. People flatter themselves. They lie to themselves. They don't even know they're doing it. Maybe you have a family member who is just off the charts rude, and they're like, well, I'm a straight shooter, (laughs) you know? Or maybe you have a friend who thinks they have a great sense of humor, but in reality, they just hurt people. Perhaps you work for someone who thinks they're a great leader. You're like, no, they're an overbearing control freak, you know? I know that's how the staff feels sometimes. Maybe you know somebody who has a drinking problem. They're saying, no, 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 I don't have a problem. I can quit anytime I want. I just like it. No, you love it. You love it. And you can't live without it. And you're asking yourself, why can't these people see it in themselves? The Bible tells you and me why. We all have this lifelong battle with self-deception. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful. Who can understand it? Our hearts have an incredible capacity to deny the truth, especially when it applies to ourselves. We tend to minimize what is true, maximize what is false, so we become blind to reality. Proverbs 14.8 says the prudent, and that word means somebody who's perceptive, okay? Sensible. They understand where they're going, but fools deceive themselves. I don't know if you ever thought about that. I've asked this question several times over the years, but if you go the way you're going right now, where will you be 10 years from now, 20 years from now, in your marriage, in your family, in career, in your inner life, your health? Where will you be 10 or 20 years from now if you keep going the way that you're going? We don't know what we don't know about ourselves most of the time because we don't want to know. And we do this to ourselves because of our pride. And we need to know this about our pride. Our pride is fueled by the power of sin in our lives. And you say, what do I do about this? Well, you have to get ticked off, okay? You say, I'm a Republican. I've been ticked off for years, you know? But here's what I mean. Growing up in South Texas, uh, there is a lot of really tall grass. You know, Johnson grass gets huge down there. And there are ticks everywhere. Ticks are all over the place. And when I grew up out in the country, there's this big creek down there. I used to love going to the creek. But as you, if you went down to the creek, as you got closer to the creek bed, you had to wade through grass. Like when I was a kid, it was as high as my head. And that grass was just full of ticks, okay? And you had to walk through acres of tall grass sometimes. And when I got home, I always had to do the same thing. My mom would always tell me, you need to strip down, all right? And you got to look for ticks. And you got to look for ticks in places you're not exactly comfortable looking, right? Because they go to the darkest places on your body, okay? They like the dark. It's such a great analogy for sin, isn't it? But unless you want that tick just sucking the life out of you, you had to look everywhere. You had to be conscious of ticks. Look at verse 19 and 20. We know that whatever the law says, Paul wrote, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. We can't work our way to righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. But it's through the law, the thou shalt nots of the Bible, the thou shouts of the Bible, we become conscious of sin. By the way, notice he didn't say sins. He says sin, that dynamic power at work in the world. John 8, 34, Jesus said, I am telling you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. God's law cannot save anyone. No one has the talent. No one has the strength. No one has the fortitude or the patience to make themselves good enough by observing God's law to be good enough to be accepted. I try to better myself, but I never reach the goal. I fall short of God's glory, and it shatters my pride. That's why Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah said this, let us look closely at our ways and examine them. All right? In our lives, there has to be a, a willingness to fearlessly and humbly, humbly examine our lives in the reflection of the truth of God's word. Like James said, we look in the mirror, so to speak. We have to look closely at our lives for anything that might be taking the life out of our soul. So what does it mean to be ticked off? It means, first of all, you're fully aware of the presence of sin in your life. Fully aware of it. And also the power of sin. So I think all of us get the first one. I'm not sure everybody gets the second one, just how powerful this is. And that is also a function of our pride. And then also being fully aware of the price that was paid to set you free. This is Palm Sunday. What a powerful illustration of the power, the dominance of sin in our lives. The city of Jerusalem was packed with people for the Passover festival, a huge crowd. And when Jesus entered the city, the people began shouting. And don't you wish you could have been there to see that? John 12, 13, they took branches off the palm trees and they went out to meet Jesus shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna is Aramaic cry, means salvation, salvation. They were praising Jesus because they thought Jesus, they really did believe Jesus was the way to salvation, but it wasn't the salvation that they thought. He is going to save us from the power of Rome. But they said, blessed is the king of Israel. He's going to make himself king. And because of his miracle working power, man, these Romans are going back to Italy. I can't wait. Okay, that's what they were thinking. And that same crowd, four days later, just four days, We're shouting again. Luke 23, they kept shouting at the top of their voices that Jesus should be crucified. And finally, their shouting succeeded. What happened? What on earth happened? They wanted Jesus to be their king, lead a revolt against the Romans, give them wealth, Prosperity, freedom, food, all those things, all the pleasures that this earthly life could ever provide. But instead of political maneuvering, 
Jesus insisted, you must repent of your sins. He went and taught in the temple every day, and he was very, very forthright. And he told them exactly what God expected. And he declared during that last week, my kingdom is not of this world. The religious and political elite, they hated Jesus. They truly were evil. They began to criticize him and frighten the people. They began to work the crowd, saying Jesus was a false prophet, demon-possessed, a Samaritan, etc., etc., and being prisoners of sin, in slavery to sin. The hearts and minds of those people were like putty in their hands. And the sin of, sinless Son of God, who had fed the hungry, who had healed the sick, illuminated the darkness. That same crowd demanded that a convicted murderer be spared. And they demanded that Jesus be brutally crucified. But here's what we have to understand. Jesus did not come to liberate Jewish people from Roman power. Jesus came to deliver to liberate everyone you and me included, from sin's power. That is what he came to do. That is what he came to do, to liberate you and to liberate me from this mastery, this dominance, to break the chains of, the, of slavery to sin and to redeem us, to pay the price, to set us free. In John eight thirty six, Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so we worship and praise and thank the Lord Jesus today because he has liberated us from this sin that Paul so vividly portrays for us in Romans chapter 3. Let's bow our heads this morning for a moment. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just want to ask this one question before we go. <clears throat> what do you need to be free from? What do you need to be free from today? Jesus said that he, he came, he, he lived and he died and he rose again. Why? That you might be free. That you might be free. Many times we aren't free of something because we've tried so hard on our own, in our own strength, in our own ingenuity, to try to free ourselves without going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I'm in chains and I so need you to set me free. And Jesus, I know that's why you came. You came to set me free. And so you might be here this morning. You might know I am a, a prisoner of my sins. I, I've never trusted Jesus to be my Savior. And so I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a, a slave to the fear of death. So I don't know what's going to happen to me when I die. And so I'm in bondage to fear of death. And if that's you here today, right now, there in your chair where you sit, you could go to the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I'm living under the power of sin. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me of my sins. I know you died on the cross for me. And I, I, I put my life in your hands. I trust you, Jesus, to save me. And if you would do that today, you would be forever changed. Forever changed, set free. And there may be some here today that might say, it's, it's the words that I speak. It's the things that I do, whatever it might be. I, I just feel like I'm in chains. And you've tried everything on your own, in your own strength, your own ingenuity. 
Go before the Lord Jesus today and say, Jesus, I need you to set me free. I cannot free myself from this thing. Lord Jesus, I need you to set me free. So I'm going to be quiet for a couple of minutes. I just want to ask you to go before the Lord in a spirit of humility. Ask the Lord to just show you that place in your life where you need freedom today. And ask him to set you free, the power to set you free. And Lord Jesus, we just love you so much today. And we're just so grateful for all that you've done for us. And I just ask you, Lord, that if there might be anybody here today, Lord, who has never trusted you as their Savior, that today would be that day. That they would just be free, Father, finally free. And Lord, for all of us here today, Father, those areas of our lives where we struggle and we battle, it seems like in vain. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us in a new way, Lord, how to lay those things at your feet. And Lord, just how to, how to find freedom in you, Lord Jesus, from the things that assault our hearts with fear or anger or dismay, discouragement, whatever it might be. Lord, show us that path to freedom that only you can provide. And we ask this today for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen.